Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page and the link is in the show notes. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Okay, post-anarchism and psychoanalysis, seminars on politics and society. Yeah, it was a very interesting read. I don't know if you wanted to, if you'd be kind enough to introduce yourself, your name, your role, background, if you have like an official blurb or anything like that, would be great to get started. My name is Dwayne Rousseau. I play the role of professor and psychoanalyst. I run a private practice and I visit an assistant professor at the Indian Institute of Technology in Guwahati. Um, And I'm also associated with the University Colleges of Dublin and Cork, as well as Nazarbayev University, where I'm a visiting associate professor. Yeah, I'm really interested to your story because obviously in these lectures that you did, there's only a certain amount of time you can only say so many kind of things. But I was interested in your, it's a cheesy word, a journey, but you mentioned this, maybe you alluded to this process of being attracted to or having that revolutionary drive or desire and then that leading to anarchism and then to psychoanalysis. I was wondering maybe how you got politically switched on and why does psychoanalysis uh, have a role maybe to play in politics? It's a really good question. I don't tend to have an answer in advance, so let's see if I can surprise myself a little bit. I got involved in anarchist social movements and collectives and affinity groups and so on when I was quite young, perhaps at the age of 14 or 15. I got very much involved in anarchist organizing. I co-owned an anarchist cafe and bookstore and so on, and I became very interested in the ways in which let's say, authority could become reproduced in the most unlikely of circumstances through charismatic authority and these sorts of things. And I was interested in the way in which anarchists can question themselves. We could say maybe reflexively. And that drew me to a new trend within anarchist thinking at the time known as post-anarchism which wasn't exclusively a preoccupation of the university, but it, a lot of the post-standard texts were coming out of university departments, but also, let's say, anti-university social movements coming out of California. And I was particularly interested in the work of a post-anarchist of sorts, a Canadian sociologist who I still deeply respect, named Richard J.F. Day, who is a professor at Queen's University. So I went to Queen's to study with him and to get involved in some of the anarchist organizing that was going on. Over there. And he brought Lacan into his work in a book that he wrote, titled Gramsci is Dead. And so that was my first introduction to Lacan and perhaps to psychoanalysis. And that was occurring alongside the Freudo 
Marx's tendencies that you see in a lot of sociology departments still to this day. And in my during my PhD, I I thought, well, if I'm going to take psychoanalysis seriously, I should maybe put myself into a personal analysis. And I had every reason to do so because I'd been suffering from intense panic attacks almost daily and an eating disorder. I put myself into analysis. I used to travel for two or three hours by train to, to see my analyst in Toronto, Canada. And that was my first encounter with the clinic. And very early on, I started to realize that there was, there was something deeply personal, perhaps subjective, that had been pushing me into anarchists. And, and I wanted to explore that a little bit more. In reading, that what I understand of anarchism is something that makes a lot of sense, right? Which is that you should question authority and you should be able to live in a world with minimal domination, if any. But I think my reading of what post-anarchism is that in the desire to take down these power structures, you end up recreating them, maybe unintentionally. Is that sort of what post-anarchism is getting at it's just saying that there's power everywhere in different places it's not centralized yeah i think what post-anarchism was doing was taking its own tradition quite seriously there were certain presuppositions and what a lot of the post-anarchists were doing at this time they were looking at the ways in which our politics were engaged in a certain dependency upon what one post-anarchist named Saul Newman would call the place of power. And so they were highlighting key ideas, such as Nietzsche's idea of uh, resentment. This idea uh, from Richard J.F. Day was that we were trapped into a paradigm of reform or revolution, which both of which are hegemonic options. And so a lot of the politics that anarchists had hitherto been engaged in involved making demands upon some sort of a, let's say, a master figure incarnated perhaps in the who wouldn't be patiently waiting to satisfy those demands. And Richard JFK called that a loopback structure, loopback structure demand. And so the idea for a lot of the post-anarchists was to try and break out of this, this problem of mastery. Saul Newman wrote a wonderful essay you can find on theanarchistlibrary.org titled Desiring Mastery that I thought was was quite clever for a title. In reading the book, it reminded me of something that Ikoi has mentioned uh, numerous times on the podcast, that even in these sort of small group situations, therapeutic situations like AA, that power just between the is it the sponsor is that the right term yeah sponsor and sponsee right yeah just that essentially there was even in in what's supposed to be helpful therapeutic dynamic there would be this perversion of power that one person would enact power over that person or even in a group situation that power there would be a leader of that group and so it's fascinating the ideal of anarchism and then how that often clashes with the fact that maybe it's just because the environments we grow up in aren't like that. And so you just then replicate or repeat the sort of those lines of domination and submission. And so part of the interesting thing here then, is any attempt at revolution always doomed? <laughs> because you're always going to just replace the person in charge. Is that sort of what maybe the sort of psychoanalysis stuff 
is getting at or revealing. Because you had this quote from Lacan, who's like the French revolutionary jump into his class, and he says to them that you are just essentially, I can't remember the exact quote. First, what you desire is a master, you will get one. Is that sort of the position maybe of some in psychoanalysis, that sort of revolution is already a failed project before it started. I think Lacan was very suspicious of the concept of revolution. His idea of revolution was that it's circular and we end up returning to the same place. And what he found was that returning to the same place, this idea of returning to the same place, is homologous with the logic of what he called the real, which he foregrounded in his work, The Real. So on the one hand, we can speak of revolutionary desires, and revolutionary desires are always implicated within a world where you can suppose there to be some sort of master that you want to overcome, whether it's incarnated in the state or in in patriarchal authority, these sorts of things. What Lacan discovered, and you can find it, I don't want to get too technical into Lacan, but you can find it really around 17 to 19 in Lacan's work, is a decline in what, this is what Slavoj Žižek calls it, a decline in symbolic efficiency, which means a decline in the potency of the master, to put it simply. And so there's another revolution besides the revolutionary desires that we have to, we have to be cautious about. It's also the revolutionary impulses. What are the impulses? I find it quite interesting. Impulse was one of the possible translations of drive in Freud's work. Death drive, for example. And when we're operating at the level of death drive, we're effectuating a paradigm, a change of paradigm in a sense, where we're no longer talking about revolutions that occur within a context of, let's say, the potency of the master, the potency of the state, the potency of power but perhaps even a more horrific context. It's the context of of our plunge into death drive. And I'll give you an example because there was an early anarchist who I think had an intuition about this and perhaps more than he was a person who was in dialogue with Frederick Engels. Engels tried to mediate some of the disputes between he and Marx. Max Stirner, a bit of an anarchist nihilist type, He's always had a problematic relationship to the anarchist tradition. He was on the periphery and he remains so to this day. Stirner was ultimately up against the problem of moving from revolutions to insurrections. He says the revolution aims at new arrangements. The insurrection aims at no longer allowing ourselves to be arranged. And what he ultimately did was he said, I am nothing. I am nothing but the creative nothing out of which I myself as creator create everything. And he became a bit of a loner figure, I think, separating from society, from from the entire context of mastery. And you can see it also, one of Bakunin's, I think he maybe even had a romantic relationship with this person, Sergei Anakiyev, who supposedly ran a secret society in Russia, whose manifesto, I think, was catechism of a revolutionary or something like that. And it begins, the revolutionary is a doomed man. He has no name, no friend, no, no doctrine. 
basically the revolutionary is reduced to nothing. So you can't say that this figure is implicated in a world of mastery where there's ideology and these sorts of things. When you're at this level, I think you're up against a fundamentally different problem. The problem of the revolutionary impulses, it always has to do with fundamentally separating from the world of mastery, but then not having a way to connect to the world. And so you end up in these lonely groups, maybe a, an enclave over there, a commune over here, but not ultimately engaging in the world. And I think this is ultimately the problem that we're having today. It's a problem of what I call, I know I'm rambling a bit, forgive me. It's a problem of what we can call segregation. If you'll just permit me another moment to develop this. When we're talking about Marxist critique, let's say the sort of Marxist critique that we hear about often in the university, Marxism 101, it's basically the Marx that was presented to us from his economic and philosophic manuscripts, 1844, I think. And this is the Marx where he's talking about things like ideology, but also commodity fetishism, being alienated from other workers, from the commodity form, from the productive process, and so on. I don't think we're in that world anymore. Today, we're, in fact, we're suffering from a different problem. We're not alienated within a world, we're alienated from the world. So it's not an alienation where we're all united into a class in itself, perhaps not yet for itself, but rather we're alienated between groups. And Lacan's name for that was segregation. He said the future is one of segregation, where we isolate together. We can call that tribalism if you like, whatever you want to call it, but there's no dialogue between these groups and the chasm is only growing. And I think this is ultimately the fundamental problem of our time, and it has much less to do with the world of mastery than with what's called death drive, segregation, and these sorts of things. Yeah, that's, that is really accurately describes the sort of internet filter bubbles where you have your political position and then that's where you intend to stay. I'm not saying the podcast is free from that because we have our own Discord and there's regular discussions on there. And to some degree, I guess that they probably rotate around similar themes. Everyone's on board. But it's one of the things actually you'd said a couple of weeks ago, Ikoi, was this thing about where you grew up in the in the Japanese village, right? Like that not everyone got along. In fact, a lot of them hated each other, but they got stuff done. And I thought that it was a simple story, but I thought it nailed something which is like that our differences are such a division to us that we just like, I don't even want to be part of anything that functions with you. And yeah, you have to, however uncomfortable it is, you do have to listen to <laughs> the other sides, the other side, as it were. Yeah, sorry, Iko, I don't know if you had any sort of thoughts or reflections on any of that stuff, because otherwise I'll happily go down a rabbit hole of some other questions. Listening to all, I know that the Wayne wrote about the Buddhists and Lacan and the self-immolation. And I think to a certain degree, yeah, like that's also, isn't that kind of a sense of separation as well? The Buddhist. The Buddhist self-immolation, the monks. Who set on fire? Yeah. yeah I, th I think the quote was, the Molotov cocktail isn't thrown at the world, but back at oneself. Yes. Yeah, but that's death drive. You know what, again, at the risk of getting too technical into Lacan, I've been studying Lacan for a very long time, I still can't say I understand very much, but Lacan said what he ultimately did was what he took from 
Freud's idea of death drive was a concept. The concept is jouissance. And jouissance, he says, begins with a tickle and ends in a blaze of petrol. And I think that's just a wonderful way to put it because it, it's, it's a self-destructive drive, this drive of segregation that we repeat. And yeah, I like what you were saying earlier, Liam. I was quite struck by it because I had, while you were speaking, I had this sense in which at least Marx's idea of capitalism, in some sense, at least it would have its progress over feudalism because it takes people off of the farms and into let's say, a factory production line where they have to encounter people that they didn't necessarily choose to work with. So there's some sort of a diversity there, but they're off the farm and they're with other people. And today it seems to me that that capitalism, I hesitate to say it, but it would almost be progress. It seems like we're in some sort of platform cap capitalism today, of like a, a feudalist capitalism, where in some sense, I was speaking about this a few weeks ago. You remember when they tried to cancel Eminem on TikTok? It was striking that on TikTok, there was this tremendous outcry, we need to cancel Eminem and so on. But then if you go to YouTube, different demographic, different platform, or you go to Facebook, there was this intense popular defense of Eminem. And so you had this sort this these farms, in a sense, these platforms at war with one another. And there was no way to mediate that. And so in some sense, if we could just get out to the factory again, in some sense, we might be able to at least have something like a revolutionary consciousness. I was quite struck again by something Lacan said in one of his earlier seminars. He talked about the benefits of capitalism. I couldn't believe it when I read that. The benefits of capitalism, he said, at least we would have to offer ourselves up to, which in some sense means to separate ourselves from our feudal fixations, from our revolutionary impulses or death drive, to extract ourselves from the satisfactions that we're getting from being on these platforms. I think that would be progress. Yeah, but there's something interesting in Buddhism. It's not all tossing a cocktail, a Molotov cocktail at yourself, of course. For Buddha, I don't know a lot about Buddha. You know, the middle path is very important. So you're not entirely in the cave. There was a moment, of course, where Buddha, he was decimated. He was basically starving in some sense. And he decides, okay, enough. And he comes out of the cave and he finally eats something. And he decides to occupy the tension between the city and the cave somewhere in the middle or something like that. And so it's not all this sort of, this passion, this pleasure of death in, in Buddha. Oh yeah, the what I would have to say goes back a little bit to like the farms that were being talked about. And to a certain degree, on one hand, I support being able to work at home as a accommodation, especially for the disabled. But with COVID and people working more and more at home, how much that might have increased those tendencies. Yeah, just, yeah, the walls come up, literally. Yeah. Yeah, we used to have, we used to be capable of, unfortunately, we used to be capable of unloading the burden of producing boundaries in space and time onto our boss. Our boss would say, our boss would say, or our manager, whatever, would say, you have to be over here at this time until this time in another location in space. And what happened for me during COVID, a single parent, so I, I empathize, was trying to manage my time on my own. It was my responsibility now. 
and I needed to look after myself. Often he would come and sit with me while I was teaching a class. And so that that burden, which was really a boundary that separated us in space and time, in some sense pulled us out of the, the, the asphyxiation of eternity. Now it's on to us to negotiate those boundaries. And and I'm not sure I'm, I'm very good at it still. The blurring of the work and home thing that has happened because of COVID and it, it also goes beyond that. It's that whole thing of your boss is your best friend or something and hide the real sort of relations of production behind all that sort of informal thing. It's fascinating because it reminds me of there's a bit in your book where you're talking about working at this university in Russia and how you'd have nightmares about the place because even when you were outside the building, you felt like the building, you were still inside it, like you're trapped in it. And that suddenly reminds me very much of the work from home situation, because on one hand, certain parts of it are a blessing. But on the other hand, it's like work now follows you everywhere. It's like exactly like that building you described, like you can't actually, <laughs> you can't get out of it. But then I guess you know, the flip side is there's also this thing of what we're talking about is political positions and these divides between people which sort of choosing to stay in that one place, maybe. We're not interested in building bridges. We found the building that we want to stay in, and we're not going to go outside, so to speak. It's almost like we've lost our homes. We might be home, but is it home? It's a workplace. And this is why I've become quite critical of this concept. I think I discovered it while speaking. This book was spoken. It wasn't written and then transcribed with Basically, no edits, uh, but Wen Young Kim did a wonderful job with making it intelligible, which I'm very thankful for. But when Freud was discussing, as I think most people know now, what he called the unheimlich, the uncanny, or the unhomely, the idea was that we have a dwelling space, and this dwelling space is, we could call it our psyche or whatever, and there's a foreign intruder. So we're not master of our own homes. There's another agency there pulling the strings or whatever and i think it would be much more accurate today to talk about a situation and this psychoanalytically a housing crisis a foreclosure in the sense of radical homelessness the problem is that we don't even have in a home and this is a problem to find a space again to carve out a space for ourselves in the world lacan said of psychosis in his decree, he said the psychotic is unable to conquer a space for him or her or themselves in the world. And isn't this the situation we're in today? And it's in the, it's on this basis that I think we got to really begin to think about generalizing the experience of psychosis instead of beginning in this Oedipal space where we have foreign intruders and so on. What I find interesting, for example, if you remember Frederick Jameson, I don't know if everybody's familiar with Frederick Jameson, an American Marxist, who I think wrote the preface to Jean-Francois Lyotard's book on postmodernism. Jean-Francois Lyotard coined the phrase, the postmodern condition, postmodernism. And Jameson described postmodernism as the cultural logic of late capitalism. And the example he gave in his essay in his book, I think, was the Benvenuti, this hotel in California. What I find interesting about this hotel in California is the way in which it literally reflects the world away from itself. You don't know how to enter it. You don't know when you're inside and when you're outside and these sorts of things. I think this is a like a really good analogy of our situation today. And it was a bit 
like how I felt when I was working at this radical experimental university in Russia. It even led me to think about the place of caves. The idea in both the Judeo-Christian tradition, but also in Plato's notion of the cave, is that you begin in a cave and, oh my God, we're trapped. We need to get outside to experience enlightenment and then come back and tell the others, so try and convince them so that maybe they can be enlightened too. And we don't live in a cave. I think it's much closer to what we read in the Quran, of all places, in the Quran. There's another version in one of the surahs, which is called the Seven Sleepers of the Cave. And basically what happens here is that you're, you're in a pagan world. Let's call it a pagan world of excesses. And you're free to worship any god you like or not to worship at all, whatever. It's what Kierkegaard would have called the anxiety of freedom in some radical sense. So what do they do? They go in search of a cave. They look for a cave, a dwelling space. And this is a world of nightmares. They go to the cave and they decide to sleep and they sleep for a hundred years or something ridiculous like this. And that's liberation, the ability to step into ideology, to step into the dream world, which I think would be a triumph today to know how to dream again in some sense. I know I'm really rambling now, but there's what's called the COVID Dream Project, I think is what it's called. It's a project where they've been documenting, if I remember correctly, the prevalence of dreams since COVID. Basically, the answer is we've stopped dreaming. We've moved from dreams as expressions of wish fulfillment to nightmare dreams. And I think in some sense, this is really interesting because if you go back to Freud again, in early Freud, this was his idea. Dreams, when we face obstacles in our waking life, oh, I can't get this, I can't have that, I can't enjoy myself, but I can in my dream world, so I try and perpetuate the dreams, the, the space of dream. In around the 1920s, he's witnessing the war neurosis, psychosis, traumas. And he says, wait a minute, not all dreams are expressions of wish fulfillment. There are nightmares that repeat. And in some sense, the triumph would be, and Freud says it in his own way, would be to know how to dream again. I, this is what we need to, to discover. And just to give one more example, I think Slavo Zizek stole this example from me. If you've seen an episode of Black Mirror called Nosedive, uh, it's a great episode. I haven't seen it for a few years, but I think it demonstrates this, let's call it the pagan world of enjoyment, where you have to perform your enjoyment like Ellen DeGeneres was doing every day, Dan and so on. I can't think of a bigger nightmare than that myself. I guess there was even a period where she was like in mourning and she had to go out and dance. <laughs> I mean, like, I want to flip the modern anarchist expression. Emma Goldman supposedly said, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. I don't think she really said it, but people say she did. I think if we have to dance, it's not a revolution. And at the end of this episode of Black Mirror, Nosedive, she gets put in prison. It's a cave, in a sense. And she sees across from her a cellmate, and she can just be a monster and not enjoy herself. She starts crying and she's swearing and this beautiful music starts starts occurring in the background and getting louder and louder. And this is supposed to be a really beautiful moment in some sense, a, a paradoxical liberation. And I could feel it. I think there was a there was something really important there in that episode. Yeah. 
The Lacanian terms covered a few there. Obviously, the death drive thing is a Freud thing and the jouissance is Lacanian stuff. The other quote that I thought was really interesting for that you had, addiction is so terrible because it's so great, as a sort of another description of the, that sort of bittersweet enjoyment that jouissance is. And then there was this stuff that you mentioned about how the death drive, essentially for Lacan, he rejects the death drive and he just says it's all about this enjoyment and that in a sense a reoccurring human behavior right like that will always happen all the time and as maybe this is as a side but the thing that it made me think of whilst reading all of this there's this movie called Everest which is based on a true story it came out a few years ago about the people who first were involved in the commercialization of climbing Everest and it's firstly 10-15 minutes of a film is the standard schlock setting everything up and all that kind of stuff but it then becomes this really gripping thriller about these people trying to get to the top of Everest and there's too many people up there and obviously everything goes wrong but there's these moments during the course of this film where the characters are talking to each other about why they do what they do and the sort of stock answer is they're climbing it because it's there but really they don't know why they do what they do. They just feel this compulsion to do it. And it was really interesting because I was watching this at Christmas time with my family and my mum was just really frustrated with the movie afterwards. So yeah, there was no, why did they do all of that stuff? Like, they're, they're mad. And I'm just like, yeah, but so to my mind, that I was like, that's the death drive. But the updated version of it would be that's not just the death drive. That is, addiction is so terrible because it's so great that you feel absolutely compelled and you don't maybe consciously have a reason for it and you can't answer that question consciously and so it really muddies the waters of particularly standard economics that we're all rational actors <laughs> and we know what we're doing human behavior would appear to be a lot more complex than economic theory yeah yeah because this idea from freud death drive it's what the oedipus complex did is some simplistic admittedly naive sense was that it regulated a feeling of too much stimulation or excitation and what the death drive showed was that there's a portion of this excitation that does not get regulated and so it repeats and it's in that sense that we can talk about jouissance it's a too muchness. This idea of addiction is great. I didn't know I said that, actually. But I do remember telling a joke. I'm not sure I fully remember it from the late Norm MacDonald, the Canadian comedian. He said, how did it go? He said to his friend who was suffering from alcoholism, which we could admit is really no laughing matter. And he said to his friend, look, I know you have a disease and everything, but I think you have the best one. And immediately there was some backlash, just some rumblings on the internet about this joke. And I think what people missed was that the joke was about the fact that it was even more terrible precisely because it was the best disease. Because it's harder to separate yourself from the, that excitation. When you speak about unable to explain why 
let's say you suffer from addictions or certain manifestations of the death drive, various compulsions and so on. When you're at that level, it's clear that you're at jouissance. Jouissance is what interrupts our ability to comprehend. That's the real. Those are the revolutionary impulses and so on. And Freud's idea is that it repeats. So, yeah, I, I quite like how you put that. I don't think I said addiction is great, but I... But <laughs> yeah, sorry, I might be misquoting. Yeah, that's true. It's just my notes. <laughs> but equally, yeah, I don't know if you had any sort of reflections on any of that kind of stuff, like how some of those ideas may or may not track with your experience working with people with addiction. It, I think it's one of those things where, you know, how certain, how schools of thought, like a psychoanalysis interpret these things are greatly, I think, divergent to a degree of like colloquial understanding. But I don't necessarily, it's, again, it's one of those things where I don't think that the psychoanalysts are like necessarily wrong. It's they're providing their interpretation through their lens of a certain condition. So I don't personally have an issue necessarily with that in a way that a lot of people might. No, I find that actually a really wonderful way to put it. It is, Einstein used to talk about language games. Lacan talks about la langue. In some sense, we're all speaking our own language, kind of babbling about. So yeah, I don't find any reason to disagree with what's said. I quite liked it. Uh, I was fascinated by you referenced Todd May, whose work I haven't read, but there was this these three things that he'd noticed there was a formal strategic and tactical and that that tactical thing was interesting because it had that the plus one thing which i was interested to get into i don't know if you wanted to briefly outline the formal strategic and tactical if i remember correct todd may reasoned that for too long to put it very simply in a nutshell political philosophy has too much cleaved to either the is or the ought of politics. In other words, let's be realist would be the is. This is how things are, thing describing the situation. And the ought is, of course, the, the tendency toward utopia, how things ought to be. Um, and he said, we need to occupy the tension between the is and the ought. And he, he also made a distinction between what he called strategic philosophy. This is a long time ago that he did it now. Strategic philosophy and tactical philosophy. Strategic philosophy we can think of as aiming toward the ought in some radical sense. Like we could imagine that at one moment there will be some sort of penultimate or cataclysmic moment where we'll shift in the war of position and war of maneuver, as Gramsci maybe put it, to finally we achieve the revolution. And the revolution tends to involve the eradication of a particular place of power. Oh, finally, we get rid of the state or something like that. And then we hold hands, we sing Kumbaya, and we have full communism. Whereas tactical philosophy understands that power, and this is Todd May's conception, can arrange itself into different registers, always shifting. And so in some sense, there can always be another place of, of power that perhaps we hadn't foresaw. We didn't foresee it. And I think we recognize that today because we're constantly adding to the inventory of not only oppressions, places of power, but also places of tactical resistance. And so whenever we have, let's say, social movements that are that foreground the principle of segregation, 
Ultimately, what they're postponing is a traumatic encounter with the world, their triggering event. And eventually, we end up encountering the trigger anyway, constantly. It's just our encounter with what triggers us and provokes us. We keep encountering it anyway. And so we can keep postponing that encounter or we can confront it dead on. I was speaking about it recently in the context of chat GPT. I was just thinking about it today because I wrote an article very quickly for Ablation magazine on chat GPT in the metaverse. And I don't know if you know what happened with chat GPT, but it's an artificial intelligence program, of course. And it had a front end, which was a, a sitcom. I think it's still running that is that runs off of the chat GPT engine. And the sitcom is modeled off after Seinfeld. It's called Nothing Forever. And what's fascinating is that it was running seamlessly, babbling, blah, 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 blah. It was perfectly coherent, even quite funny, I have to admit, and sometimes funnier than Seinfeld itself. And then what happened was it confronted a traumatic situation. It accidentally, the main character, made a transphobic joke. I wouldn't say accidentally because it's a question of whether artificial intelligence can actually make a blunder, a parapraxis. I think it can, personally. But at this particular moment, it was so triggering to us, not to the artificial intelligence, as far as I can tell, because the artificial intelligence went on babbling. Chat GPT, the main character said, why is nobody laughing and these sorts of things, if I remember correctly. And so it, it kept babbling and creating and fabricating something using metaphor, metonymy, and these sorts of tools. And when it made the transphobic joke, Twitch, I think, and YouTube Live immediately brought it offline and implemented a censor. At this moment, we realized something traumatic, and we put an end to this. And I think at this particular moment, horrific as it was, and it was horrific, I don't remember exactly what the joke was. Actually, I don't think I know what the joke was. But this horror nonetheless produced a confrontation with the blab of chat GPT that kept repeating and going on for, that could go on for eternity. And it forced us to bring it down. And I think that at this particular moment, we could recognize the monstrosity of our own humanity in artificial intelligence. And we could in some sense impose some sort of a limitation upon artificial intelligence. What's fascinating, and then I'll shut up because now I'm blah, 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 is that how dream censorship works for Freud. Censors, censorship in the dream, it's not a prohibition against satisfactions, stimulations, excitations, and so on. In fact, the dream censor functions precisely to keep you dreaming. It, it fabricates things and then it keeps you dreaming. And what Lacan took from that was the idea that in some sense, we never wake up from the dream. We wake up only to continue dreaming. And Nothing forever after they implemented the sensor was put back online and it goes blah, blah, blahing again. And so it's a question of if we're willing to actually face the horror and wake up. Do you think psychoanalysis, though, I don't know, does psychoanalysis help you face the horror? Because I think one of the things, there was that book, I haven't read it, I only ever read the blurb, but the title got my attention was something like we've had a 100 years of therapy and things have only gotten worse in this idea of a politics or sort of a better world 
is psychoanalysis really the tool that's going to get us to a better place or is it just treading water in the status quo? Like you can imagine, say you wanted to, in its most simplest sense, you wanted to make the world a better place and then you come across Lacanian stuff, which is, yeah, in your attempt to make the world a better place, probably you might turn into a tyrant. That might be the worst reading of it, but whatever. Does psychoanalysis actually move the needle as it were, towards a world where people have homes, they have food, they can make effective decisions about their own lives, they can be healthy? Or does psychoanalysis just end up with those that can afford it just to stay static? Yeah, it's a question. Lacan never wanted psychoanalysis to be a therapy. And I think Freud made a similar statement. It's a question of what's the difference between analysis and therapy. But I can speak from my personal experience instead of lapsing into theory. I would say that analysis for me at a time of rampant death drive was a space of refuge and it was a dwelling space. It was a space where the secret, you could have secrets again instead of having the publicity of secrets and so on. I, of course, the war between Ukraine and Russia and, and analysis and some of the various psychoanalytic modes of organization were spaces of refuge for me during that time. It was a space of routinization, paradoxically, uh, while I was moving from country to country. It was a space where I could speak when I lost the dwelling space within which I used to speak, the classroom, because I was teaching and then I lost my ability to speak <laughs> in some radical sense. It was radical homelessness. And, and so psychoanalysis for me was, was a defense against the drive toward death of civilization. And it remains that for me, I would say. Yeah, there's a fascinating bit towards the end of the book where you were talking about Russia had already faced the death of the nation state. A civilization remains, but the nation state has already died once. And that it reminded me there was some pretty strong language there about the description of Russia, which I can't now find in my notes, but it was basically describing it like a lonely monster. I think you were quoting someone else. And it reminded me of that quote about the the child that doesn't get attention will burn the whole village down to feel its warmth. Yeah, I mean, it must have, yeah, globally, obviously things are very unstable and very scary, but to have been at the uh, there and have to leave, I can imagine that can't be an easy experience to have everything upended. Presumably it just came out of, you didn't see it coming. You're actually inside Russia. So presumably this, was it like the whole frog boiling in the water kind of thing? Or was it, did it all happen very quickly? There was a sense in which it was going to happen. In fact, I didn't publish the seminar in the book, I should have, where I said without realizing it, something, it was something of a prophecy. I said, this is coming. In the last 15 years, there's been an upsurge in research among scholars, I think, in the field of international relations. It's not one of my fields, but I heard this concept, in fact, from a close friend of mine, a political analyst from Canada, also a professor. He introduced me to the idea of the civilization state, this concept. And the idea has been championed by Russians, by the Kremlin including one of its intellectual, one of the intellectual masterminds of 
the Ukrainian conflict, Alexander Dugin, who's a sociologist at, I think it's some university in Moscow, but it was also championed by India. And the idea is that the civilization state operates according to a fundamentally different logic than the nation state which doesn't mean that the nation state doesn't have its civilizational tendencies because it does. The nation state tends to operate from what I can gather upon notions of international solidarity. And so you have the League of Nations and so on. And you can see the way in which it's able to leapfrog literally geographically across territories, whereas the civilization state tends to expand and contract like a, I think I described it in the book, like a balloon. And so it tends to grow its parameter, but not leapfrog. And so I thought, okay, in some sense, we're confronting an entirely different logic. The civilization state seems more homologous to what we might call a non-Oedipal logic, whereas the nation state depends upon things like the rule of law and so on. And so I was thinking, okay, Immanuel Kant well-known philosopher. He once wrote this little text that doesn't get a lot of attention, essay, I think it's called something like Notes for on the Possibility of a Perpetual Peace or something like this. And the idea was that he said, war is actually a remarkably productive moment in history and it leads toward an eventual perpetual peace because war displaces people, but then in being displaced in space and time, they're able to form symbolic agreements with one another, like peace treaties, trade agreements, and these sorts of things. Ah, but then in the, like the 1970s, we see the way in which as the rogue state, the discourse on the rogue state in the West becomes transformed into a discourse of the evil empire and so on. The way in which more and more the West approaches a logic of the civilization state. Jean-Francois Lyotard suddenly announces the birth of postmodernism, where there is what he called an incredulity toward metanarratives, a suspicion of symbolic authority, these sorts of things. And what we see with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it seems to me, is precisely that. It's so postmodern in the sense that there is a fundamental incredulity toward not just metanarratives, but symbolic authority. There's no, you can't even think about forming peace treaties and so on. In fact, was it the wife of the leader of Ireland when I was in Ireland? She got, Sabina Higgins is her name. She got into a lot of trouble while I was displaced as a refugee into Ireland for saying that Russia, Ukraine should come to the table on the border in Belarus and come to some sort of a peace, peace arrangement, have some more peace talks. And everybody attacked her, the ideas like you don't enter into dialogues with a bully, with an aggressor, and these sorts of things. Forget about the normative judgment, because what it's ultimately saying is we can't even think about the fact of symbolic contracts and these sorts of things. This is the period of history that I think we're in. And and I think this is this is what really troubles me. Yeah. Again, with these sort of huge superpowers again you have the sort of lone individual a bit overwhelmed and one of the one of the things you said in, in the book psychoanalysis disrupts the tendency towards hierarchy and fraternity it might have been Lacan quote it might have been yours I can't quite remember but Lacan clearly had he, he mentioned this school that he saw as a place where people could be together without all of the baggage of domination submission 
And then, yeah, I just wondered in what ways that either Lacan or yourself or how you think psychoanalysis disrupts tendencies towards hierarchy or, you know, the dangers of the group or the segregated group? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And I'm not sure the extent to which anything like that could be generalized. That's why it's a tragedy, but it's only for some in some sense. But I think what, what we've seen in the West and what I've been very much a part of in my, let's say, radical organized, mostly alongside anarchists, but radical Marxists and so on in the past, is that the way we fought hierarchy was through fraternities, a certain, let's say, communal sensibilities. And what we're witnessing now is the way in which fraternal sensibilities just displace the problem that used to be embedded in hierarchies. We used to be, let's say, alienated within an overarching social bond. That's the problem of, let's say, capitalist hierarchy. We were alienated, as Marx correctly identified, but within an overarching social order of some type that we could call capitalism or whatever else. The problem with fraternity is that it displaces it. Now it's not alienation within an overarching social bond. We're alienated between social bonds, again, with the platforms. And so the problem for me, and I witnessed it in my own organizing, the way in which, for example, anarchists have used since the modern period principles of voluntary association to produce a new form of what Eric Laurent, a psychoanalyst with the World Association of Psychoanalysis, what he calls racism 2.0. In fact, that's what Lacan called it as well. He didn't mean it in, in terms of how we use the concept of race. So it's more of a technical concept for him. But it's again, fraternity follows a logic of segregation. Hierarchy is a logic of alienation. And these are fundamentally different problems. And I think what the what the cartel does, which is a let's say a mode of organization developed by Lacan and his followers under the psychoanalytic school, is a social bond that attempts as best as possible to disrupt hierarchy in the sense that let's say you have a small group that's roughly akin to what anarchists call an affinity group or a collective, four or five people in a group. There's no leader, but you have a person whose role it is to keep the knowledge moving. So in some sense, you have a hierarchy without the place of power, but also the notion of fraternity, the what's called the plus one in the cartel, their function is to constantly disrupt the group identifications. Psychoanalysts have long, I'm sure you know this better than I do, they've long been suspicious of groups and group identifications. And so the idea is to, as Lacan put it in one of his documents, was it Lacan or was it Jacques Alain Miller? I don't remember. The idea was to return each one of us to our loneliness in relation to the school. And so Lacan, when he formed his school, he said, I form as alone as I ever have been. So in some sense, it's a lonely cause and the school embraces the loneliness. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a tough sell, though, isn't it? I think, what's his name? Is it Todd McGowan? Um, I've got his name wrong. But anyway, he was talking about that with uh, someone on Sublation recently, just that the left's position ultimately is one of <laughs> loneliness and that, yeah, that that's a difficult thing to to sell to people. Eko, I don't know if you had any thoughts about the, uh, particularly psychoanalysis being suspicious of groups, that sort of is something I can imagine resonates with you. 
Oh, yeah, I, it absolutely does. This is one area of I my my understanding of psychoanalysis is I have the basic language and concepts and not much more, in all honesty. This is one area where I tend to be more of a listener than a commenter. Yeah, it's certainly true that if Harry was here, she would have jumped in and said various things because she's trained in interested in some of the Freudian stuff and the Lacanian stuff as well. But yes, this concept that you just mentioned, in I'm not completely sure what the difference is between affinity groups, cartels and voluntary associations, but obviously I guess they all have their own definitions and strengths and weaknesses. But I really liked this thing about the plus one, that every point you're subverting is probably the wrong word, but you are there to dissolve... <laughs> <laughs> dissolve things or I think you said plus ones always come with a question mark they're sort of provocative and I guess my question related to that is that and it goes back to something that both both Ikoi and yourself were talking about this idea that, that maybe the psychotherapist has one sort of one theory or view of human behavior and Ikoi is a substance use disorder counselor you'd have maybe a different perspective on the same thing and that the question is that for a while, Freud's stuff was taken seriously and then it went out of fashion. And the ideas around the unconscious, there's various authors who've written books and pushed back that does the unconscious even exist in, in the particular way that he's saying, does it exist that way or does it even exist at all? And in, in countering some of this work and reading your lectures, it is interesting to consider that. What if the conscious, the unconscious wasn't real? What if it wasn't a thing? And then these Lacanian ideas of the, the real, the other, they are in essence they're academic inventions that you can't prove either way. And essentially it becomes like a fan fiction right? A highbrow fan fiction, but it, it becomes fan fiction. Alan Watts has got this whole thing about humans are just talkers, <laughs> just enjoy talking. And you wonder, I do wonder with some of this stuff, to me, it makes sense. There's plenty of real world examples where you can say, oh yeah, I can see the application of this theory happening over here. But what if it isn't true? And the reason I say that is partly to, it's come up, it's come up a few times in various podcast episodes where it's about challenging the authority generally, but challenging authority of the therapist. Like, what do they know? Like, she, there's clearly an issue in, in the States. I'm sure it exists here in Britain, but I haven't come up against it myself. Because you have the credential, therefore you're the expert and you know best. But I think there's also something healthy about rejecting the authority of the academic or the psychotherapist, but the psychotherapist would say, you're just going to repeat this this sort of bad attitude to authority. And I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts about that. I'm not sure if I've come to the question really, but I'm just more interested in on your perspective on it really. I really like this question a lot. I have in front of me, you can't see it, but a photo of, oh, geez, I shouldn't call it a shrine because that'll get me in trouble, of Lacan. Right. <laughs> it, it's, it's a caption and it says it, it it almost comes across as if he's lamenting he's not there there how did what does it say there was a time when people believed 
psychoanalysts knew something. This question of the unconscious, does it exist? Can it be proven? How can it be applied? And so on. I think you're right to say that it's an invention. I think it is an invention. It's an invention of Freud. And Lacan also invented his own unconscious, and he called it the Lacanian unconscious, which was to be differentiated in some sense what we believe to be the Freudian unconscious. In some sense, what was the Freudian unconscious? If you look at, without lapsing too much into a didactic mode, if you look at the Freud second topography, it's a technical thing in the 1920s, but there's a sense in which the unconscious is housed in the dwelling space of the psyche, and it could be interpreted. Okay, Freud actually cautioned against this if you dig really deep into Freud, but the idea was that there were meanings inscribed in the pre-conscious or unconscious, and, and through some sort of interpretation, you can derive those meanings, let's call it the latent content or whatever. So we could call that a symbolic unconscious. And I think you're right to question if the unconscious exists today. But where did it go? And I think my wager is that in a period of radical homelessness, where we've lost the dwelling space in some sense, the unconscious is outside of ourselves. Today, I think we witness the unconscious in the politics of our time. We witness it in ChatGPT. ChatGPT is the blah, blah of the unconscious. Look, the, what were the essential operations that occurred in the unconscious revealed in the dream work for Freud? It was what he called condensation displacement, which basically is what Lacan calls metaphoric substitution and metonymic, let's call it slippage, metonymy and metaphor. If you look at chat GPT, it can use metaphor very creatively. It's weaving things together. It's interpreting and so on. So in some sense, I think at the time when we no longer dream, which was the royal road to the unconscious, we witness our dreams outside of ourselves in chat GPT and in artificial intelligence, in our delusions about what other people mean by what they say and these sorts of things. It enters into what Freud would have called the perceptual consciousness system as a delusion. And Lacan's wager was that delusions are pervasive. We're all delusion in some sense. So when Lacan said, as he did, I don't remember when, in his middle period or something, I dare not say that the unconscious is politics, but that politics is the unconscious. I think this is what he means. It means that now we can see our unconscious unfolding out there. And it's a question of how we can access our unconscious when it's outside of ourselves. So we make a distinction, some psychoanalysts, make so-called psychoanalysts make a distinction between the symbolic unconscious, which was Freud's device, and the real unconscious, which is, which is in the real, in some sense. And I think the way in which we can see how we are implicated in the unconscious that we witness outside of ourselves I whimsically said one day, we dream outside of ourselves, and I stand by it. It's in these moments of trauma. Like I mentioned, the transphobic joke that occurred on chat GPT. All of a sudden, we can see that in some sense, we were triggered by what happened out there in the dream world, in chat GPT and artificial intelligence, and so on. This is a moment where we confront what Freud called the navel of the dream, the part of the dream that cannot be interpreted. 
meaning falls, and so on. It's just horror. And in these moments of triggering or horror, we can see the way in which we are tethered to what's going on out there. We are affected by it. And some people feel it deeply in their bodies. I was talking to a friend the other day who watched this transphobic joke happen live, a trans person. And this person told me they felt nauseous. They felt like they were going to throw up when it happened. It deeply affected them. And so we can see the way in which artificial intelligence can go on without us. It can dream without any need of us being there or present. But there's always a moment where we can rediscover or reinvent the unconscious. In this case, in the moment when we confront the real, something horrific that's happening in artificial intelligence or whatever that provokes us to do something about it, to feel connected to it. This is an idea I've been exploring a little bit. At this moment, you can't talk about an unconscious that knows any more than you can talk about a psychoanalyst who knows something. This is the fall of knowledge, right? So the unconscious isn't about ultimately at its deepest level, the dark continent. It's not about its applications or how it can work, how we can put it to work, how we can discover it, and so on. It's about what doesn't work. The unconscious reveals itself when something breaks, when something doesn't work. It's what doesn't work, what cannot be applied, what cannot be implemented easily. It's one of, it's a blunder. It aligns very much with, I've mentioned it a few times actually in previous recordings, but we, the, the co-author of the book, Ian Parker, he co-authored this book called Psychoanalysis and Revolution. And his thing when he was talking about the unconscious was that, you know, it's not some sort of dark mystical place that it, that it's in society our unconscious is our encounters with other people and the the things that we come across it's our sort of cultural beliefs it's a social process it's not necessarily a yeah the dark cave inside the individual so it, it tracks there i just wondered because it was mentioned in passing you, you mentioned lacan's real and you said in the lectures that the concept of the real and revolutionary have a sort of similar relationship. I just wondered if you could outline what you meant by that. Yeah, it's a difficult thing. And I was quite surprised when I discovered that the definition that Lacan gave, and I've never seen anybody else highlight this, it just, I stumbled upon it. The definition that Lacan gave for the real was similar at times to the definition he gave of revolution. Revolution, he said, it's the revolution of the heavenly bodies that always return to the same place. Incidentally, that was the same definition that he used for the real as that which always returns to the same place. There's a sense in which Lacan was, on the one hand, suspicious of revolutionary discourse, quite suspicious of it. Yet, on the other hand, he said that there is one counterpoint to the discourse of mastery, within which some revolutionary sentiments are expressed, such as those of the student, those students who were in the streets in 1968, which Lacan confronted, and who, sorry, who confronted Lacan, and the, the psychoanalyst discourse. Lacan's idea was that the analyst discourse is the only counterpoint to to discourses of revolution that are that are beholden to the master's discourse, to the revolutions of the master's discourse. Lacan 
in his 17th some discovered four discourses he later added a fifth maybe another one after that and if you look at the first three which were the master's discourse which he was obviously opposed to the university discourse which he was quite opposed to he likened it to also philosophical discourse the obsessionals discourse and so on and and the hysterics discourse which in some sense he held out some hope but it still didn't go all the way if you look at the university discourse and the hysterics discourse they were just revolutions order turns i think counterclockwise of the master's discourse uh, so in some sense, they didn't get rid of the master. They've merely displaced their subjective position in relation to the master. The analyst discourse, by making the real the agent of its discourse, was able to, to occupy a fundamentally different position. Uh, and this was, this was, I think, his hope for, for, let's say, a more promising revolutionary position, at least a counterpoint to discourses of mastery. I don't know if it's just a thing of language or age, because the the definition of hysteria or hysteric, the best reading of it is just excess energy, right? The worst reading of it is historically placed. It's you're a woman (laughs) and you need to be treated by us experts because you're having all these sort of health problems and it's nothing to do with society it's just clearly just deal with being a housewife lol so the hysteric i took to mean an excess amount of energy opposed to the kind of gendered historical term is that sort of what lacan's getting at when he says hysteric i don't mind that way of putting it excess energy actually i really like it there's a number of ways to interpret his he really produced something like a formula the hysterics position, and it can be interpreted in different ways. He said that, whereas the formula can be integrally translated without interpretation. But ultimately, what how he formulated in my interpretation was that you have as the agent, as, the, as your point of departure, if you like, a subject who is split in some sense. So you can think of it as like in a philosophical way as what Hegel called the beautiful soul or what maybe Nietzsche called the position of slave morality, basically of a person who understands their victimization and their right. They are victimized. They're victimized by language. They're victimized by the society within which they live and so on. And so there's the confrontation of this split subject with what Lacan called S1, which is a master or a master signifier to be really technical. And that's a really productive position, in fact, because what it produces is, Lacan said, knowledge. It's always from the position of the hysterics discourse that that some really interesting new development discoveries can be found. In fact, Freud credited the birth of psychoanalysis with hysteria. There was no, there's no psychoanalysis without hysteria. In some sense, you could even say it's the bedrock of psychoanalysis. So the hysterics discourse is not a bad position to be. In some sense, what we even want to do in a cartel is to hystericize people so that we can, we can find uh, new discoveries to keep knowledge moving. Of course, the truth of the hysterics discourse is a real that the hysteric cannot confront, and the hysteric has nothing to do with biology whatsoever. The hysteric is a position that one occupies within society. I'm quite hysterical. In fact, the real is their enjoyment that's in stake at stake 
in their, in some sense, their deadlock that they face with the master who they can't seem to get beyond, even in their attempts to get beyond the hysteric. To get beyond the hysteric is, in fact, to fall into something perhaps like melancholia. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a recent example, a young guy whose father died in their rented accommodation. I think it's in London. And it's because there was really bad mold like all around the flat and the conditions of the living conditions were so terrible that it ultimately led to this young person's father dying and uh, he this person had written done all the sort of normal routes to complain to the people who owned the landlords the sort of corporate landlords and nothing worked and he got some stroppy letter from them just dismissing him and that's was the sort of complete moment of yeah so he put he, there was this rage he basically put this thing up on social media just highlighting his conditions and that's the point when the corporate landlords got in contact and said we're sorry that you feel that this happened in this particular way that your dad died because of this stuff and he was in then such a rage at their sort of dismissal that's when he ra- went around the whole estate and got photos from everyone of their poor living conditions as well and now he's in a really powerful position thanks to the people that were around him and the social media and all of the work that he's doing that it's hopefully now changing policy right it's going to change the lived reality of these people who are paying lots of money to be in terrible housing. And immediately reading about the hysteric and my interpretation of it was this sort of excess energy. I was like, oh yeah, because that's the point is when he got the letter from them, he'd had a whole day of work. He was completely tired. He's obviously traumatized and mourning his dead father. And he gets this letter and then he has that energy to be like, screw you, go around the whole estate, collect all this evidence against them. I was like, that is... That's the power of the hysteric, right? You haven't usurped the landlords. You haven't really necessarily changed the structure, but at least you've, you're going to change something. And in the process, he's woken up a whole bunch of people. It's part of the conversation now. So I, I assume that might be a good example of the power of the it's, hysteric. It's the, yeah, the power of the hysteric to mobilize. I was thinking just now while you were speaking about, in some sense, the flip side. Like, I think soccer what we call soccer in Canada, some people call it football, how it must be quite a hysterical sport, say, compared to something like, I don't know, Ultimate Fighting Championship or something, UFC, something like that. Because you'll see how, for example, I don't know, I'm thinking spontaneously, but how soccer players will, they'll run up to somebody and then there's no contact, but they'll fall down on the ground and fake an injury because they know (laughs) that will mobilize and and get some power. And on the other hand, Why is it then that soccer, I have a friend, Gabriel Kuhn, who wrote a book on this, I think, many years ago. Soccer, there's a whole, in the audience, there's a whole, like, radical hooligan culture. And I find that fascinating. Hysteria can really mobilize. But we shouldn't just presume that hysteria always mobilizes in our favor, because it can and it can't. Uh, Perhaps some might claim, and some have claimed, it wouldn't be my claim, 
uh, Donald Trump is perhaps a bit of a hysteric. Oh, the media is out to get me. I'm a victim of I'm a victim of the establishment. I'm the anti-establishment candidate. And then he mobilizes people or look at the this is why revolutionary hysterical revolutionary aspirations are not always good in of themselves. Look at those who stormed the White House. Could we say that they're hysterical? I think so. In fact, if you look at the manifestations of what some people used to call the alt-right and so on, they present themselves in a fairly hysterical mode. Um, they're operating within a different environment, though, because we, one wonders who the master really is there. They present themselves in some sense, as what Hegel would have called the beautiful soul. From the psychoanalytic position, we're not so much interested in the reality of the claim, whether it's true or not, but in the mode of the discourse. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. In kind of an odd way, isn't like Jordan Peterson the hysteric figure? Yes, I, it's possible. It's quite possible. I remember this line from Jordan Peterson. There was plenty of motivation to take me out. And this intense conviction, and it's often a moral conviction at times, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's a really good point. I also wonder, yes, Lacan was a therapist himself, right? Psychoanalyst, as well as a teacher. And it's like that saying, you never ask a barber if you need a haircut. And I wonder if in the sort of the claim that psychoanalysis is the thing that is better <laughs> than the master-slave thing or anything else, you just wonder, is it's, com it's a convenient position to have given that's your job and I just wonder if you have come across things that have given you those sort of moments of doubt as well now maybe psychoanalysis isn't fit for this but it is fit for this kind of thing yeah it's a great question I hesitate to share something but I will it's just the age of immediate publicity anyway that was Kierkegaard's thesis in his book the present age I think it holds very well today but I was in a discussion with a very respected analyst who's a friend of mine. I won't mention this person's name. And we were sharing um, let's say the unpleasantness of psychoanalysis. And I was thinking even about how this person described psychoanalysis as ripping apart so many of her comforts. Wow. Ripping them apart. All of the comforts that she had hitherto, including a marriage. I've heard a, an analyst say it was because of psychoanalysis that I decided to get a divorce. I think psychoanalysis isn't for everybody. And because for a while there, I was thinking of the difference between poetry and psychoanalysis, for example. I'm going to generalize a little bit because we know that there's Bukowski in poetry and Bukowski doesn't fit this model and there's some others. But I think poetry... what. Ultimately, there's a, a poet named Kalal Gibran, maybe you've heard of the Lebanese mystic, who said, I saw you in my dream, and then you came in my awakening too, which was my deeper dream. Well, there's a sense in which poetry confronts something like an awakening, which would be a horror, only to return to a world of beauty. Poetry is ultimately, a, in the final instance, it seems to me, you return to the comforts of the world, to the beauty, and so on. And I think in some sense, the terror of psychoanalysis, if I'm being brutally honest, is the fact that it suspends you, or at least me, if you're ready for it, in the moment of a confrontation with the horror of the world. 
That's not for everybody. One of the prices I think I have paid for for my analysis, which is which went on for a decade and a half, is in some sense a radical destitution, a, a loneliness. And it's not always pleasant. <laughs> and some sometimes I even think, if I'm being really honest, that the movie The Matrix, the first, the first Matrix, where that guy with the handlebar mustache, Cypher, I think is his name, he makes a deal with the Smith, Agent Smith, and he's eating the steak and he says, I know that this steak is just electrical signals being interpreted by my brain. He sees the illusions of the world and he's no longer comforted by them. He awakens. And he makes a deal with the agent. He says, put me back in the matrix. I don't want to remember anything. And he says, ignorance is bliss. I think I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because I did, I thought of the Matrix sequel whilst reading this book. That thing of that actually Neo was required for the system to work, that there would be a rebellion. He would figure it out. He'd get to the top. And then ultimately, when faced with this truth, he'd just go back and repeat it all. And I was like, oh my God, this is exactly a lot of the stuff that you were talking about. And just to add to that, Douglas Rushkoff recently, he was on the podcast a while ago, but he's a tech writer and educator and all this kind of stuff. But he was recently in his podcast talking about this thing about he felt in the early 90s when he was writing about tech stuff that it was very much about waking people up. And now he realizes all he's doing is waking people up to the nightmare. He's <laughs> wake up, we're in a nightmare. And it's, yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard sell. And, and it just, I'm sorry for interrupting. I wonder if there might be like another version of the Matrix. So maybe the last Matrix was something like this, but you know how in the Matrix, there's still the sense in which the Matrix, the machine, the artificial intelligence requires our body for surplus value in some, for energy, for surplus energy. It needs yeah. to extract it. We're, ba we're Our bodies are batteries for the machine. In some sense, what artificial intelligence shows us today is that the machine doesn't need us at all. It can go on without us. It doesn't need our bodies. Surplus value, we don't need to talk about that in the age of artificial intelligence. It can keep going. And I think this is this is also, this would be a nice new version of the Matrix to see it going on without us. Yeah, yeah. And it's just totally fine. And it's just, again, coming back to that, that thing of waking up and realizing it's a nightmare. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but there is a, I think it's in the South Park movie where Kenny dies and they operate on him and then they wake him up and they go, oh, we saved you, but we replaced your heart with a jacket potato. And so then like three seconds later, his chest explodes and he dies. So it's that same sort of thing of, yeah, ignorance is bliss. You wake up and then realize things suck. That's why I wonder if he was the real revolutionary. In some sense, he went all the way. And then he thought, you know what? I'm not a dupe of this world anymore. I've like I've extracted myself from the world of mastery. Okay, but now I want to enter it again on my own terms. I want to be a dupe again. I want to believe in something again. I want to find the cave. I want to find the cave and I want to dream again. And I don't think we should fault him for that. I think that even in some sense, that might have been what Lacan meant when he said the analyst's desire, the psychoanalyst's desire to be distinguished from the hysterics desire. It's a one. It's something I wonder anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's funny, talking of XX Energy, it's that thing of needing to 
call it an end and then just keep on going. So thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed reading your book and very grateful that you came to discuss with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ikoi. Thank you, Liam. Yeah. Apologies for lapsing so much into technical stuff. I feel like I can't help myself. I did listen to a couple of your, your episodes and I what I really admire about what you're doing is quite the opposite of what unfortunately I sabotage today is the way in which you're able to take these these really difficult ideas and make them like extremely accessible to people. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmas, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Inter- personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.